As we come to the reading of God's word, let's pray. Our Father, we give thanks that you have laid a firm foundation for us in your words and ask that you would graciously and powerfully speak to us now that our faith in Christ might be strengthened and he might be glorified. In Jesus' name, for his sake we pray. Amen. Our reading, uh, second reading this morning, uh, is from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 34. And it's on the notice sheets. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he has accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptised on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Well, I want you to imagine for a moment that we'd conducted a survey on the way into church this morning. A very simple survey, one question. How would you summarise the gospel? How would you summarise the good news? Now, I'm fairly confident that a lot of these responses would say something like, Christ died on the cross for our sins, or words to that effect. And that is quite right. The cross of Christ, where Christ died for our sins, is absolutely central to biblical Christianity. 
It's not by coincidence that the cross is the most recognisable symbol of Christian belief, adorning churches all over the world. And that is completely consistent with what Paul uh, writes back in chapter 15, verse 3, which we read a little bit earlier. He said this, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. But Paul, of course, doesn't stop there. He also says that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So what is of first importance to the Gospel? Well, it's Christ's death and his resurrection three days later. Both are central. Both are of first importance. Given the emphasis we rightly put on the cross, it's interesting that Paul, uh, here in 1 Corinthians 15, now spends a whole chapter focusing on the resurrection. So it's got to challenge then our own understanding of the gospel. Do we proclaim the cross and the resurrection of Christ? Is the resurrection of first importance to us? Because it would seem like it wasn't for everyone in the city of Corinth. Uh, That's what we'll see in verse 12. Uh, Some among the church denied there even was such a thing as a resurrection of the dead. So Paul sets out to show us why the resurrection, as much as the cross, really is of first importance. We've got three uh, questions this morning uh, that we're asking and that we'll answer. Firstly, how can we be sure we'll be raised? Secondly, what world will we be raised into? And thirdly, how does the resurrection shape the way we live now? So firstly then, how can we be sure we'll be raised? Morecambe, Ronnie, Ant, French, Laurel, Fry, Mitchell, Barry. Now if you hadn't worked it out, these are all one half of famous comedy duo, uh, comedy double acts. But the point about double acts is if you separate them from the other half of the duo, you make them worthless. They have to go together, don't they? You need them both. It has to be Morecambe and Wise. It has to be the two Ronnies. It has to be Ant and Deck, French and Saunders, Barry and Paul, the Chuckle Brothers. And in verse 12, uh, we see that a, a wedge is being driven Uh, between uh, the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. The Corinthians are denying there is such a thing as a resurrection of the dead, but at the same time they are saying, well, yes, Christ was raised from the dead. They're affirming that Christ, they're affirming the resurrection of Jesus. Yet, like those comedy duo at Double Axe, the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection of Christ go together. You cannot have one without the other. That's what Paul says in verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If there is no resurrection, then it affects Jesus too, because he was dead and buried. And if Christ has not been raised, then that has two major consequences. Firstly, in verses 14 and 15, 
We see that publicly proclaiming Christ's death for sin and his resurrection from the dead is pointless. If he didn't rise, then there is nothing to believe in. The gospel is literally empty and powerless. But far worse than just inviting people to believe in something worthless, by continuing to do it, we're saying that God did something he didn't actually do. Now, if you're ever called to give evidence in a court, you'll first have to make an oath that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And having made this promise, if you then proceed to lie to the judge and to the jury, then no one says, oh, it doesn't matter. We'll just let you off. No, it's a really serious offence and it's punishable with a very heavy sentence. If Jesus wasn't raised then Paul and the apostles and anyone else who preached of Christ's resurrection is effectively lying under oath about God. An incredibly serious thing. So, verse 16, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. The second consequence is in verses 17 to 18. And Paul holds no punches here. If Jesus hasn't been raised, then to put your trust in Jesus is absolutely pointless. Because he has not saved you from your sins. And he cannot save you from your sins. Death has not been defeated. You are not forgiven. You are not at peace with God. It's not enough for Jesus to just die for sins. He must also rise from the dead. And again, if the gospel, uh, what Paul delivered uh, of first importance is incomplete, then anyone who has died trying, uh, trusting Jesus to save them is not saved. Their faith in Jesus did nothing for them because Jesus didn't really do anything for them. They died with their sins unpaid as enemies of God and as a consequence, they are lost forever. I wonder if you've uh, ever played the game of Jenga. You have a tower of bricks, don't you? Uh, Bricks in threes. And the aim is to remove a brick from towards the bottom of the tower and move it to the top in an effort to build the tower as tall as possible before it becomes too unstable at its base and comes crashing down. Well, it's just like Paul is playing a game of Jenga. He's showing us how removing a piece as vital as the resurrection brings the whole gospel crashing down. And if this is the case, then as verse 19 says, we deserve pity for following something that isn't true. If Jesus has not been raised, then there is no resurrection of the dead and Christianity is meaningless and hopeless. It's not enough to say, well, yeah, even if there is nothing more, even if there is nothing after uh, death, at least I made some nice friends, I had some good experiences, and I lived a slightly better life. Now, if Jesus is still in the grave, he lost, and sin and death won. No resurrection means this life is all there is, and death is the end. And that is bleak, isn't it? 
But it isn't the end of the story. Because, verse 20, Christ has been raised and he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, one of the points that Paul is making in verses 1 to 11 is that the resurrection of Jesus was public. It was witnessed by a lot of people, some of whom were still alive when he was writing. He's saying to, those who are, to the Corinthians, you can go and talk to them. You can verify that Jesus rose from the dead. If Christ has been raised, then there is a resurrection of the dead. If you have one, you have the other. So how does Christ's resurrection lead to our resurrection? Well, the first fruits of verse 20 were the first crops of the new harvest. They were the first instalment. They were representative of all the crops that would be gathered in over the harvest period. And just as there is one harvest, there is, in fact, only one resurrection. And to explain what he means, in verses 21 to 22, Paul takes us right back to the beginning. He says, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Just as our first parent Adam brought sin and death into the world, so Jesus brings forgiveness from sin and life from death into the world. Just as Adam's death did not affect him alone, so the resurrection is not, for Je- not just for Jesus alone. With his resurrection, Jesus has reversed the death of Adam and provided the promise of resurrection life to everyone who puts their trust in him. To trust in Jesus is to move from belonging to the one who gives death to the one who gives life. Now, quite often in life, we are reassured by the fact that someone else has gone before us, that someone else has tested and tried uh, something and shown it to be safe. So maybe when you're driving along, you come to a flooded road. Well, we want to see someone else drive across it first before we give it a go ourselves. We want to know that our car isn't going to disappear into a hole and sink. We want to know that it isn't going to be swallowed up by the waters. And in the last few weeks, we've seen two of the richest men in the world make it to the edge of space and return safely. I'm sure the many billionaires and millionaires who have bought tickets for future flights are relieved to know that the technology that is going to transport them actually works. Jesus has entered into our death and come out safely on the other side. It was once said that death is a little like the midday sun. You should never stare it in the face. But because Christ has been raised to life, it means we can stare death in the face. The power of death has been defeated by the one who took on our death in order to give us life. Jesus' resurrection assures us that death is not the end for us and the gospel is true. So looking back at verses 12 to 19, we can turn everything around. Those who preached of Christ's resurrection were not preaching in vain, but were telling the truth about God. 
Our faith is well-founded. Our sins are forgiven. Those who have fallen asleep are, in fact, alive with Jesus. And in fact, we are to be envied by the world, not pitied, because we have hope. If Jesus has been raised and our trust is in him, then we have been raised with him. Secondly, then, what world will we be raised into? This is verses 23 to 28. Our resurrection is just like any harvest. It's not all gathered in at once. It happens over a period of time. It happens over the summer months. And when you see mountains on the horizon, uh, they look to be in one line, don't they? But as you actually get closer, you find that some of them are further away than others. And so it is with the resurrection. From a distance, it looks like it's all going to happen in one go. But when we get closer, we find actually that it is more spaced out than we first thought. And there is an order to the resurrection. Verse 23, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Now, this delay doesn't prove that the resurrection didn't happen or won't happen or that death has won. Now, the delay just ensures that those who have fallen asleep with their hope in Christ will awake to a whole new world. So the resurrection establishes Christ as God's king. And he ascends to his throne to reign to continue to put, the right, put right the chaos and the disorder that Adam brought into the world. And that's what we see down in verses 25 and 26. The purpose of Christ's reign is to put every last one of his enemies away, to destroy those powers who would unjustly oppose him, with the greatest enemy, death, saved until last. But of course, not everyone sees death as an enemy as something that needs to be destroyed. We live in a world where death is increasingly seen as a friend, a solution, an answer to our problems. And we see it in the rise of abortion and of assisted suicide. Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, once said, death is very likely the single best invention invention of life. It is life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. But this is not what we feel at the grave of a loved one. We feel robbed. We feel angry. We know it's wrong. And we do anything to have them back. Now, our tears and our longings tell us death is not a friend, but an enemy, an unwelcome visitor. And we all long for a world where death is not always lurking around the corner. But that's exactly what Paul says Jesus will deliver. Christ, the risen king, is delivering the world we all want. The world we long and ache for when death comes close to us. Death is an enemy. But Christ's victory over the grave assures us that it can be and will be put away for good. For the moment, it might look like death is winning. But verse 25 reminds us that the the clock is ticking. Death remains only for a little while longer, and its hold is only temporary. 
A time is coming when death will be no more. When sorrow and sadness, yes, they may remain for now, but joy really will come with the morning. If we are trusting in Christ, then when the time comes and when we fall asleep, or when we awake, we really will awake to a whole new world where everything has been put in its proper place, where all the threats to God's people have been removed, where death and sin are but distant memories, never to return, having been made untrue. This is the true hope we have through Jesus, the risen king who rules over all of his creation. He will deliver the world we will want. Better is to come. So finally then, How does the resurrection shape the way that we live now? This is verses 29 to 34. And it's important to be honest, it's hard to know exactly what Paul means in verse 29 by people being baptised on behalf of the dead. But it's, it's helpful for us, I think, just to look on a little bit at verses 30 to 32 first. Because this is where we find Paul reminding the Corinthians that to be a Christian is a a dangerous activity and it is a life where in fact he in a sense dies every day and it seems that Paul is is counting himself amongst the dead because that is the reality he faces every day as a messenger of Christ uh, and his death and resurrection that's probably quite hard for us to identify with what Paul is saying when we live in a culture that is still largely very tolerant to Christianity. The gospel doesn't really cause us any pain uh, day to day. But the Corinthians would have known by experience that the gospel, rather than delivering them from suffering in the present, had in fact brought them much closer to death. So here's what I think is happening in verse 29. It's not that the Corinthians are engaging in some weird abstract practice of baptising living people for dead people. Instead, I think that Paul is asking why so many people continue to be baptised, to be identified through their baptism with, with a Christ who died and with messengers of the gospel like Paul, who are being killed if there is no such thing as a resurrection. What motivation would they have to keep going and keep doing that? Because if there isn't a resurrection, then there is nothing to be gained from putting your life in danger for the sake of the gospel. And that's the point that Paul makes there in the first half of verse 32. Paul faced a great deal of opposition to the gospel uh, that he proclaims in the city of Ephesus. Over the page in in chapter 16, he says he has many adversaries there. And in Acts 19, Paul narrowly escapes coming to harm at the hands of idol makers whose trade is being disrupted and diminished by people becoming Christians. So it's no wonder he describes the opposition he encounters in Ephesus as being like fighting with beasts. What's to be gained from a battle that could see him torn apart? if he has no hope of resurrection. If there is no resurrection, there is no reason to stay. He should be running as far away as he can possibly get. But in fact, Paul says, in the second half of verse 32, 
If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You only live once, right? If there is no resurrection, if this life is all there is, one option would be to start just working your way through your bucket list, squeezing every last drop out of this life. And the very last thing that you should be is a Christian, which puts you closer to death. But I think there's a, another more subtle way that we can apply verse 32. A way that's much closer to home and actually much more dangerous. I think we can deny the reality of the resurrection by seeking and settling for a comfortable life. And we're not explicitly denying the resurrection with our mouths, but our lives tell another story. We're just not holding this life very loosely. Everything is very controlled. Risk is carefully managed. And our lives are full of good things. So nice house, nice car, nice possessions, nice food and drink. Eventually nice holidays. And none of which we're particularly keen to relinquish. Everything is very safe. We want a good life now as well as a good life later. But it's not just Paul's message that proclaims Jesus has been raised from the dead. Paul's life proclaims it as well. Paul shows us what it really looks like to live knowing that he will be raised with Christ. To have Christ's resurrection power coursing through his veins. Often when we know we're going to have a difficult day, it makes getting out of bed just that little bit harder. But not even the prospect of death can keep Paul under the covers. The uh, prospect of death doesn't send Paul running in the opposite direction. The prospect of death doesn't lead him to settle for a comfortable existence, free of risk and uncertainty, full of the sorts of comforts that we surround ourselves with. No, Paul is able to get out of bed morning after morning to stare death in the face as a faithful servant of Christ because Christ was raised And death is not the end. Tomorrow, he lives. So what does the way uh, you live your life say about what you really believe? Does your life proclaim that Jesus really is raised from the dead? Does your life make sense of the resurrection? Or does it suggest that Christ hasn't been raised from the dead? That this life is all there is? If there is no resurrection, then live a comfortable life. But if there is a resurrection, then stick your neck out. Perhaps like the saints are doing, you can give up the security of your job, the home you love, the friends you can't imagine living without, to go and serve the Lord on the other side of the world. Or more simply, perhaps tomorrow at work, you won't just blend into the background looking just like all your other colleagues. But you'll stand out because you are confidently and faithfully living and speaking for Jesus in all that you do, regardless of the consequences. Following Jesus is costly, but Christ's resurrection assures us that there is a better life to come, which means we can and should hold this one very loosely indeed. But Paul is not quite finished. Verses 33 to 34, he says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. 
Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. It's a warning, isn't it, to be careful who you are influenced by. Be wary of those who deny the resurrection. Beware you too don't become corrupted. Now, how are we most likely to be influenced by those who say this life is all there is? Well, possibly our friends and our family. But probably mostly by what we see and hear on, on TV, at the cinema, the music we listen to, the computer games we play, whatever happens to be on our social media feeds that day. And we're naive if we think that that won't rub off on us and shape us if this is the main diet that we feed ourselves. Bad company ruins good morals. What we receive needs to be received critically and carefully. But we also need to be willing to ask hard questions of one another, to help one another live in light of the resurrection. We must be careful we are not all complicit in maintaining our comfortable lives. Christchurch Central shouldn't be a safe haven for those who affirm the resurrection with their mouths but deny the resurrection with their lives. Instead, we want the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, the hope that we have in him that this life is not all there is to be revealed in the way that we all live our lives for him. To deny the resurrection, whether explicitly or implicitly, is to sin. To borrow Paul's language from earlier, to deny the resurrection is to misrepresent God, to say he hasn't done something he really has done. And that's why we're to sober up and to stop sinning against God in this way. We're to remember that the resurrection, as much as the cross, is of first importance. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Uh, We thank you that because Jesus was raised from the dead, our faith in him is well-founded. Our sins are forgiven. Those who have fallen asleep are alive. And in fact, we are to be envied by the world because we have hope that death is not the end and that eternal life awaits. So help us, we pray, to proclaim this great hope ever more clearly, not only with our mouths, but also with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.